Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So greetings, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Insert Human and actually another conversation with John Levy, who was on the show a few weeks ago, uh, talking about the topic of influence, which he is, I could argue, an expert in, and specifically his new book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, which John just informed me is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller and is that, is that correct, John? Yeah, and uh, USA Today. And USA Today. I don't know if anybody looks at that list, I'll be honest. Yeah. USA yeah. Today, I'm not complaining. I'm very happy I'm on it for future reference. <laughs> well, congratulations for that. And um, Thank you. That talk about influence was profound. And I remember at the end of it, wanting to have the conversation continue on. And by the way, the, the trigger for the original conversation was me coming upon an article that John had written, uh, I think for the for the, Bo- the Boston Globe, which is my local paper titled The Hybrid Workplace Probably Won't Last. Mm-hmm. And I read that and I was like so moved by the clarity of it and frankly, the contrary nature of it, and we'll talk about that in a second, that I reached out to John and John ended up being on the show. But we didn't talk about that, we talked about influence. And so I asked John to come back today and talk to us about that topic, call it the future of work, call it hybrid, call it whatever, call it the phenomena which has come out of COVID, which is this point of view among many that um, everybody's gonna be working from home for the rest of their lives. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I, I don't believe it. Uh, and John, I think, has a much better way of explaining why it may not unfold the way so many pundits and 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 futurists think uh, think it might. So, John, th- again, thank you for uh, for taking Are you a, kidding? a, a I, bit I more have time. To say, I've done a lot of podcasts. I really enjoy bantering with you. Like, oh, thank you. you. It's, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's not the same exact thing that like. I'll go on a whole bunch of other podcasts and it'll literally be, you know, like, I feel like we're following a script. Uh, This deviates. It's interesting. It's really engaging. So thank you. I appreciate you saying that, you know, and and as you know, my my aspiration in all this uh, is helping people understand people, like getting to the innermost truth of, of why humans do what they do, why they don't do what they should do, why they shouldn't (laughs) do what they do do to, to help us all make, make better decisions, realize greater outcomes, you know, lives of more meaning, of more consequence. And I, 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 I really do, I was talking to a, a president of a university this morning and I said, you know, I am, we were, well, John and I were just talking about how old I am <laughs> and, <laughs> and that I could see the end of my life <laughs> and I will go to my proverbial grave holding on to this flag of humanism as a central uh, tenant 
of, 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 of our, of our future. Like we've got to get better at it. And John, by the way, my view, uh, is, is pretty fucking, pardon my French. I shouldn't say that pretty brilliant at it. Uh, you know, his, your background, behavioral scientists, uh, a, a, a student of humankind, um, a, a connector of people. And so I, I, everything that you've said to me in our conversations has just like so resonated in terms of its, its insight and its, and its, uh, its truthfulness. You know, it's like, wow, that makes perfect sense. So let, let's talk about let's talk about the future of work and this whole topic of hybridization, this theory that everybody wants to hunker down at home and never go into the office ever again. And why, why do you think that may not end up being ultimately how all this unfolds? So I think the the important thing is uh, to understand it from two perspectives. One is what's actually good for us. And two, what actually happens when people interact. Uh, so the hybrid workforce is, I think, estimated at maximum potential, maybe 20% of the population, right? So most jobs you can't do from home. If you're a waiter or a a sanitation worker, any of these, right. like you have to be on location. Otherwise it's not going to happen right. for you to uh, order stuff from Amazon <laughs> for every one person in the office, there needs to be a ton of people in delivery, right. fulfillment, all these other things. So it's, it's only really affecting a portion of the population to begin which, with. Which by the way, I think is just a, another interesting facet of humanism which is we extrapolate to 100% with <laughs> within like a second, right? It's all or nothing. Right. Uh, it, it's kind of like when they say there's a 20% chance of rain, people mean take that to mean it's not happening. It's like 0% right. rather than one out of every five days, we say that there's a 20% chance it's actually going to rain. Right, right. Uh, so I think then we have to understand, okay, we're talking about 20% of the population, but what is it that actually has people be effective, happy, live a long life? Like, what are these characteristics? And a brilliant Brigham Young study actually tracked people over the course of years and found that the greatest predictor wasn't, if for you to live a long time, it wasn't, oh, that kale cleanse you had or like a Pilates class or something like that. Then after genetics, which we currently can't control, number two is having strong social ties, so close friends and family. Mm. And number one is something called social integration, which is this idea that measured with the number of people you come in contact with, but it essentially means you're part of a community. And so if we're actually opting out of interacting with people by staying home, then theoretically, oh, people say, oh, I get to spend more time with my family. I doubt that's significantly true. It depends on the position. And the reason I say that is the average person basically just took their commute time and added it to their workday. And so they're not away from the family less, they're just locked in a room longer and coming in contact with less people. Um, it's also, you're losing your transition times, which are really important. So you're going from like a frustrating meeting straight to your family rather than having the commute to break things down. Right. Um, so, the other thing is, if you look at what happens to effective teams, the greatest predictors 
uh, fall into kind of like two categories. One is Paul J. Zach did a study looking at trust levels, and you're able to match them to company stock value, employee sick days, and profitability. Hmm. And that shouldn't be surprising because Google did this thing called Project Aristotle, where they asked, oh, what is yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know this well, yeah, I guess. Well, yeah. The greatest predictor of team success is psychological safety. This right. idea that we're not going to be kicked out of a group simply because we have an opposing view and voice it, or we won't be punished for it. So now you might ask, okay, I get it, not coming in contact with a lot of people, high levels of trust. These are really uh, critical elements to success and longevity. What does that have to do with working at a distance? The fact is it's really, really hard to give people a sense of belonging or to develop trust at distance. It just is. And so, Do you think it's even possible? Yes. Like, can you build? Here's my question. Do you trust me to some well, degree? Well, it's funny because as I was saying that, I was actually thinking about our relationship. Like we've never met in person. <laughs> but I think I would say, yes, I do. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Got it. Answer so, my question. Okay. If you want, we can actually break down why, right? Most people talk about, oh, how important trust is. Trust is generally viewed as a byproduct of three characteristics competence, your ability to do something, honesty, that you're truthful, and the third is benevolence, that you have other people's best interests at heart. Mm. So they're not equally valued, right? If somebody screws up one day, Michael Jordan misses a shot, you don't say, oh, I can't trust him. Everybody right. messes up occasionally. Right. If you find out somebody lies to you, you doubt everything they say or have said. So clearly, honesty is more important than, uh, than competence. But there's a kind of loophole, which is if you tell me we're going to pick something up from a friend's house, and then when I enter, it's my surprise party, you've just lied to me. But it would be really weird if I was like, Chris, we can't be friends anymore. You lied to me. Right. right. And that's because we value benevolence above honesty and honesty above competence. So you probably trust me to some degree because I have a reputation of competence, right? I've been in the media enough and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, I have a reputation, hopefully, of benevolence. but um, and I doubt there's some reason for me to lie about this stuff, right? So there, right. there's the potential for trust. The bigger way trust is actually built is uh, through a process called vulnerability loops. And this is why it's so hard at a distance. Vulnerability, vulnerability loop? Loop, yeah. Loop. Okay. And it works like this. We're chatting and I go, Chris, I am so overwhelmed from releasing this book. I'm feeling kind of burnt out. In that moment, I've signaled vulnerability. Now, if you ignore that or make fun of me, oh, John, you're weak. I'm not going to trust you. It'll reduce trust. But if you acknowledge it and say, John, I know how you feel. Things have been really stressful because of some family stuff, been a little anxious. What are you dealing with? Suddenly, we've both demonstrated vulnerability to the same level and we're both safe. And so, so we know we trust each other more. I, I, just an aside there, uh, we were away last week and um, with friends and we got into, a, he and I, Alan and I got into a conversation about the measure of relationships and how you sort of look at who you curate into your life, whether the context is professional, personal. And he threw out for him three attributes of um, uh, emotional maturity, mm -hmm. integrity, mm -hmm. and vulnerability. Oh, interesting. And, and, and we subsequently talked about of the three, for me, the one that is most resonant is vulnerability. 
Mm-hmm. Like our my capacity to be human with you is predicated on you being willing, open to being human with me, which vulnerability to me is like that marker. I, I don't know. Yeah. So I just, yeah, it makes sense. So and, here's and, and, what's, what's interesting. Right. I actually, you, you kind of said something that's interesting. You said it's predicated on, and that's because we generally think that trust precedes vulnerability, but it actually doesn't. If you'll notice, it was the fact that I was vulnerable first in that scenario. Right. You acknowledged it and responded, and then I saw that you responded. That caused the trust to build. Right. Now, right. the reason I bring this up is it's really hard to do that at a distance, right? If you ask somebody to pass you some papers or you stop by somebody's office and ask for advice, it's, very, it's much easier to happen in person, right? At my dinners, I run the secret dining experience. We have people cook together because it opens and closes loops very quickly. In team sports, you see it all the time, right? right. They learn each other's patterns and where they need to come in and how to support. At a distance, it's really hard. Now, some people do it by letting their family interrupt so they can introduce their family, mm-hmm. or they talk about things during the first five minutes of a conversation, things that are normally hallway conversations or, or side conversations. But you can see that that's not the same when you're doing things digitally. Now, right. there are opportunities that you can take advantage of at, on digital platforms that you can't in person, but for the most part, what we're seeing is a general decline of trust. In society? Not- uh, I don't know if in society, I'd say in the workplace. Yeah. So if you, I'm talking on average, not between specific people. Yeah. I'm saying, okay, somebody left your company. They have a new replacement. You've never met this person. Unless you really dig deep with them, then the average trust at the company just reduced. Right. Right. So- the, the big issues that I see are, one, it's really hard to build trust. And trust is a fundamental characteristic. For human beings, feelings of belonging are so essential to survival and to success that they predict your longevity, right? In, in belonging and trust are overlapping circles, in a sense? I would very much say yes, because... Yeah. In order to feel safe and that you belong, there has to be a, a minimum right. level of trust. Right. right. You, you could maybe have trust without belonging, but no belonging without trust. So sort of jumping to the future, because <laughs> all this makes perfect sense to me, and I, I imagine to a lot of the listeners, who becomes the steward of do corporations have the capacity to understand the underlying dynamics of this? And, or do we just have to go through the hell of trying to hybridize the workplace? And then we end up in this place of more and more people quitting because they don't have a sense of belonging. Like, how do you see this? Yes. So <laughs> how do you see this I, unfolding in a, <laughs> I think that you're in both cases, you're right. So first of all, some companies started out, um, pure digital, right? You hear these startups who they've never actually met in person. Right. Um, and they're able to build a company culture around that. And that's very different. Uh, I also don't know if they can scale. Like, we're, mm. are they going to grow to the level of a Google? Like, that's tens of thousands of people. I'd, I'd be surprised. Yeah, because I think that as you get bigger and bigger, uh, you, and you have more and more layers, 
it becomes harder to coordinate across a company, especially right. without adding more meetings, right? The, the collisions that would naturally happen in the hallways. Um, so I think the first thing we need to accept is that nobody has all the answers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the smartest people in the world are trying to figure this out and they're incredibly competent, but you can be incredibly competent. And then at the scale of 80 or 100,000 people, everything will break at some point or at some places it'll break. Uh, there's also an issue that we could make every decision on the individual level that's phenomenal for the individual and it's absolutely terrible for society as a whole. I'll give you an example. Okay. A survey done by Future Forward found that white knowledge workers were seven times more likely to want to return full-time to the office than their African-American counterparts. I think I saw something like that. Yeah. So I think it was 3% for African-Americans and 21% for their white counterparts. Now, there are two really surprising things that come out of this. One is, why? Is it because redlining caused the Black workers to be living in areas that are much further and as a byproduct it's a longer commute is it that they don't feel as integrated and have as much equity in the company and as a byproduct don't really want to be there is it that african-american families tend to be closer maybe and they want to just be around their kids more often mm -hmm. who knows mm -hmm. there could be a lot of things but it's a pretty big statistical difference so here's the question I'm running theoretically HR. If I say, okay, every single one of you can choose to stay at home if you want, then I'm doing something very respectful. But now all of a sudden we have a underrepresented group now further underrepresented in the office. So I, what's being allowed now is a self-imposed segregation. Now, we also know that if you're out of sight, you're out of mind. The people, Wall Street Journal had a big article about this a couple of weeks ago, that if you're not in the office, you're probably not getting the promotion, mm -hmm. right? Now, is that a case for everybody? No, but on average, you're going to be less likely because the boss is going to see you less, see your work less, assume you're slacking off more. So yeah, if I can just quickly comment on that, the conversations <laughs> I've had with people about this, I've said there are certain functions that are, are, are quantitatively measurable sales mm -hmm. yes like john your whole performance is attached to how, how many how many deals you do period mm -hmm. and so your physical presence in the office may have nominal impact on your career because it's all about the numbers programming software development it's all yeah. about quality of code and quantity of code but i'm going to guess that the vast majority of white collar jobs are not that that the measures are not absolute, they're not quantitative. There's a huge mm -hmm. qualitative factor, which is based on how, what people perceive. Yeah, there's a, uh, I do want to finish that previous thought. So oh, let's sorry, make sorry. sure to, no, no, it's fine. I, but I do want to acknowledge what you're saying with something called the Allen curve, which we can talk about in a bit. But the, the concern I have is, oh, if we, then say, okay, it doesn't make sense to just let everybody not come in because now we're actually potentially reducing our development and the progress that's been made for greater equity. If we suddenly say, okay, everybody needs to come in, 
then those then that company could be viewed as having white supremacist attitudes right. that oh white people want to come in now they're forcing everybody to come in and so it's a no win situation it's either you could end up being viewed as racist or not letting people stay at home or you could be supporting practices that lead to less integration by allowing people to stay so it's really complicated really and it's complicated. literally a no win um and so i think that a lot is going to go wrong before we get this right and then we're eventually going to settle on something right uh amazon i think their policy was everybody needs to come in 3 days a week and then uh you get 1 month a year where you can work from anywhere so 4 weeks you can literally be in hawaii as long as you get your work done so it's an interesting compromise uh i also want to emphasize one additional thing It used to be a six-day work week. Many people had twelve-hour shifts, especially in factories and such. And then it got moved into a five-day work week. And this is so ridiculous. Why? It was because among people, Henry Ford noticed there was no day for people to actually buy his products. <laughs> Good and, old Henry. <laughs> and so he petitioned and said okay moving forward we're only going to do a 5 day work week but i want to point out that a 5 day work week 6 day work week 4 day work whatever it is is arbitrary it's not actually based on how much we need to rest how much we need for personal time and how much like yeah. do activities like laundry care for the kids and how much work productivity what's clear is lawyers trying to maximize billables are getting a like are decreasing their efficacy for every hour that they build because they're just not going to be able to focus um so there is an optimization there i'm not saying it's a 5 day work week i'm not saying you need to come into the office 5 days a week or anything like that but we need to begin with the, the entire system is just arbitrary yeah. based on a religious 7 day work week and people needing to buy cars yeah 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 like, Yeah. So I mean I've commented that a lot of the sort of the, the the structures of corporate world corporate America particularly are are grandfathered from the industrial age and mm -hmm. have not been um updated to to acknowledge how work really does happen and you know my example is um if I come up to your cube at 11 a.m. in the morning and you're on uh Zappos buying a pair of shoes you and i both think that's a problem mm -hmm. and yet at the same time i think if i email you tonight at eight o'clock when you're finishing dinner with the kids and you don't respond to my email How that's a problem you? yes what, what were you thinking i need answers it's just like uh, yeah, yeah it's completely absurd the the other thing is that i heard things like oh we've increased productivity so much being hybrid No you I don't know if that's true how are you measuring productivity right. I've never met a firm that could effectively measure productivity short of maybe like egg producers right, right. you can count how many eggs chickens are making that's like right. easy um but it's really arbitrary what they're saying is that they're seeing people work longer and harder for the same amount of money yeah but if you notice right now people are so burnt out yeah. I don't I can barely get a hold of people like everybody's on vacation everybody's been 
on such high levels of adrenaline, worried that they're going to be fired, worried that they're going to get sick, not knowing what their kids are like. There's just been so much anxiety and we've experienced trauma. And what I think we're going to see is like a necessity for cultural therapy, almost in like a reduction in what we call productivity, whether it is or isn't right. product. Right. Well, one of the things you're triggering is there's this other conversation. It's not even conversation. The statistics are bearing out this this quitting quitting epidemic. Oh yeah. You know, and it was predicted, and lo and behold, I think I think it's it's being it's happening. I might have a point of view on why that is, but what's your point of view on why did COVID cause so many millions? of mm -hmm. white collar workers, not just white collar, but workers to decide enough is enough. So I think that there's two or three things. One is that people are burning out. Like there's quite literally a, a, a problem that we're overworking ourselves with a lack of feeling of purpose, right? The second is that human beings have a bias called the endowment effect, and it works very funny. If I ask you, oh, I like your headphones, can I buy them off of you? You'll give me a number that is disproportionately high because it's yours and you value it. And the classic experiment was people- Actually, in my case, I just give them to you, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, you're a much nicer human being than most. The classic experiment, they took a group and randomly gave half of them a pen and half of them a mug. And then a few minutes later, they say, oh, we happen to have extra pens and mugs. Does anybody want to switch? And virtually nobody did. And that's weird because the chances that you'd actually want a mug or a pen is only 50-50. You'd expect half the group to prefer the other item. But it turns out that anytime you have something, you think it's worth more than it is. Now, before COVID, there was no expectation to work from home for most people. There was no privilege of taking lunch with the family. There was none of these things. And now suddenly people are coming in and saying, this thing that you feel endowed with, that's yours, we're going to take it away. Mm. And so even though we had no agreement that this is yours, it's, have you ever heard that phrase, possession is nine tenths of the law? Mm -hmm. Now that you possess it, you feel like it's yours mm. and that you have the right to it. And what's amazing is people are quitting without having another job offer. And that's a pretty incredible thing that either you have to get them so upset or they have to be so burned out that they're willing to take that kind of risk. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty incredible. And so yeah. I'd say part of the problem is an endowment effect. And Part of the problem is that people are actually just genuinely burnt out. The yeah, emotional again. strain of a pandemic is enough to drive anybody to like burnout, but throw on top of it, longer work hours, no contact with human beings and very, very poor methods to, to emotionally process what's going on. It's like a confluence that's a, a mess. Yeah, and I, w I might add to it, my, my you know unsubstantiated theory is that COVID eliminated all of the things that you were just talking about, social integration, a sense of belonging, trust, mm -hmm. joy, fun, office party, distraction, water cooler conversation, trans, trans you know, uh, 
going to work, coming home from work, and that when you pulled all that stuff away and I, as the worker, was forced to look purely at the work with none of the surround sound, I realized I don't actually like the work. <laughs> that before, yeah. the, the surround sound masked, in a way, what I was actually doing for a living. Uh, and I don't, I don't, again, I have no data to support yeah. that. You're much I, better I, can at this I than I Can I add one more thing? Sure. That there was so funny when the article came out, one of the things I said is that some commute time is really healthy. It allows for transitions and allows us to process the day. Right. So right. if I'm, I actually do a 30 minute commute several times a week and I love it. It's when I listen to audiobooks, it's when I engage in media, it's when I kind of like imagine through scenarios and process things emotionally. Yeah. And we lost that. Now, yeah. one of the biggest complaints that I, I got about the article is, oh, yeah, it really sucks not to commute an hour and a half each way. And all I could think is, why on earth is anybody commuting an hour and a half each way? Like, that doesn't make actually any sense. You can really? either find another job or maybe move. I, like, I understand right. that in some scenarios, it's just not an option, right? right. Where people, families are looking. But that's a crazy amount of time. That's three hours a day. Yeah. Now, some people can take phone calls and all that. But like, once again, that's just a really long time. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, I agree. If you then suddenly have this like moment where you can really look at how unpleasant a lot of what you're doing really is, then it makes a lot of sense to maybe move on. Yeah. Yeah. I have, a, well, I have a friend who recently, like the company reorged during COVID and he didn't know if he was going to have a job and he was anxious for months. And then they gave him a severance and he was, you know, senior in finance and, uh, and they gave him a million dollars severance paid over the course of a year and something. He got bonus, like a serious amount of money. And uh, I laughed. Because he was like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Now I have to find a new job. He had been working at the same company for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. I said, if you woke up yesterday and I said, I will pay you $1 million to quit your job and find a new one, would you do it? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, clearly. And I was like, they just paid you a million dollars to go find a job that pays more. Go. And that's like the endowment effect. That, that was yeah. my money. They took it away from me. Like they're taking it away from me versus they're giving me something. Yes. That's exactly what so you're saying. There's so a, that, that we'd probably call more like loss aversion. So loss aversion is that we tend to experience more pain from losing something than the pleasure we get from gaining it. So if you lose $100, it hurts to the same degree that earning or finding $250 is. Oh, wow. So on average, it's like 2.5, 2.6. In intimate relationships, it's more. Like I, I see a, a ring, you're married, I assume. Yeah, second uh, marriage, yeah. Um, so you might know this from your first marriage. If you say something that hurts the person's feelings, you generally have to do five nice things to make up for that one thing. <laughs> and you're like, well, that explains why we're no longer together. <laughs> I'd only is, do two. I mean, is that a function of our sort of protective nature like the underlying safety and control is sort of such a driving force that losing losing is more significant than than gaining because losing sort of is exposure 
I, I think you're right that uh, researchers who've looked at this tend to say, well, if you're alive right now, then you can continue to be alive. But if you lose something, that might put that at harm. Right. Having extra is nice, but losing something might really put you at harm. Right. It's, it's and so risk. I think it's kind right. of just trained into us. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, I'm, I'm aware, mindful of the time, and I don't want to keep you all day. A, a couple of things. One is you, you referenced earlier... Uh, as it was impacting this sort of quitting epidemic, uh, this this the topic of purpose, which is also something that's been written mm -hmm. a lot about for a long time. It's just a, sort of magnified, I think, as a function of uh, of COVID. What? Why is that? Why does that matter? Like, you know, why are all all of a sudden everybody holding up purposes? This is how corporate America or corporate world should operate, and what, why is that? today seemingly more meaningful to people than you know in my early days it was all about just having a job so you could pay your bills like what's 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 changed to make purpose such a such a thing i think that if you look there's this been natural progression in relationships to expect higher and higher levels of maslow's orders of needs mm -hmm. from them mm -hmm. so 1700s 1800s you're married to survive by the 1950s you start hearing people getting divorced being like he's a good person he's never hit me but i'm just not feeling love or right mm -hmm. nowadays there's this expectation of your spouse to like be your best friend help you grow achieve enlightenment like there are mm -hmm. these expectations that are so insane and Eli J. Finkel, who wrote a book called The All or Nothing Marriage, has found research this, that a handful of marriages are happier than they've ever been in history. And the overwhelming majority are less happy because this expectation is completely unfair. Hmm. Or unrealistic? Unfair or unfair or unrealistic? Yeah, unreal. It's unrealistic. It's okay. unfair to expect that my okay. spouse will make sure I stay going to the gym. That's not like they're my spouse. If I want to go to the gym, hire a trainer. Like it's, that's on me. Right. Right. Um, and I think that we're seeing that shift into our relationships at work. And that's actually not fair. Right. So we're not only is it important that I get paid very well and very fairly for my labor, which should just be the case. Right. Like nobody should be doing like there needs to be a, a minimum wage that really allows people to have a functional life. But now the expectation is, okay, the company has to help me grow. So we've started offering classes. Now the company has to have a mission that improves the world, right? And we're just seeing this. And we keep hearing things like millennials care about this or Gen Z cares about that. And yeah, they do. But I think that it's, it's kind of unfair to expect a tire company to be saving the planet, right? Like there's now, here's I, the, I love that. I love the, frankly, contrarian view on that, because a lot of the world is gravitating to this is, you know, it's like the business roundtable issuing the it's more than it's more than shareholder returns. It's, you know, we have a responsibility beyond that. Oh, I think that shareholder returns is a terrible measure. If you actually look, it causes practices that are awful, like firing right. large numbers of people just to hit quota, like then you don't feel safe working there. Right. Now, the. It is contrarian to some degree, but I do want to emphasize 
there has been research, I need to remember who did it, that looked at organizations that have a fight, right? Now, when I say a fight, I don't, uh, and this was what was emphasized by the researcher, it's not like Samsung currently fights Apple, right? They're like, we're better than Apple and their mm -hmm. phones or whatever. And that's fine. The problem is that then Apple employees never want to come to work for Samsung. <laughs> like you're alienating people. Uh, and for years, that fight existed between Windows and Mac. Mm -hmm. And then Steve Jobs got a lot of flack when he showed up on stage with Bill Gates to like introduce some Apple Windows product or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the fight needs to be bigger than the industry. So mm -hmm. what Apple did with privacy is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Now you mm -hmm. can be proud of an Apple product because they're fighting for our privacy. They're not directly attacking Google or Facebook, but that's a byproduct. Mm -hmm. Now, that kind of research has shown that when you have a good fight to fight, then people are more engaged. So I don't necessarily think that you need to be saving the planet. Yes, if the entire company's mission is to get every child home safely, that's a fight. Right. That's a purpose. Right. But it doesn't have to be like, we're going to make the most green environment. Like it would be nice if they did that. Right. It would be nice if they put all their money to Black Lives Matter or, you know, social, whatever. Not every company can be involved in everything. It's irresponsible right. because right. then you're actually diluting what you're actually trying to accomplish. Right. Right. Now, uh, so if you look, there's a great, really short book called Why We Work by uh, I've, I've read about it. I've not read it, but I've read about it. Yeah. So it's super short. It's written by uh, Barry Schwartz, who came mm -hmm. up with the paradox of choice. And one of the things he said was that uh, if you want to hold on to talent, then you're going to need to give them kind of like something bigger. Now, I don't know if it's a purpose or meaning or whatever you want, or narrative. It's helpful. And it lets people feel like they're making more than just widgets. In the tire example, it's a beautifully simple, like I came up with that off the top of my head. It's a beautifully simple example of a purpose that can drive behavior, but that really doesn't change anything dramatically in the structures of the company, right? You're not suddenly a B Corp trying to give away a third of your money to right. some cause. Right. You're not becoming comms where you're buy one, get one kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that's, that kind of stuff is important, but we also have to be really realistic with what our company's responsibilities are. Like first it's yeah. to make sure the employees can get paid. Yeah. So, so as a way of sort of wrapping up, you know, one of the things I try to do with the show is have my guests provide uh, potential steps the audience can take, you know, whether mm. the context is personal, professional, you're the leader of a company or an employee of a company. And I know you said earlier, you know, this this transition is going to be messy. Like it's complicated on many levels, corporate level, personal level, you know, functional level. Um, so there's no prescription. There's no like here are the seven yeah. steps on how to how to create a hybrid work environment that works. And, um, and let's be honest, if though that listicle existed, it would be nice clickbait on some website. <laughs> But it would work for one company and not and, for right. Yeah. So, is there anything either for the individual? So, you know, here I am coming out of COVID. There are parts of my quarantine life that I like. There are parts that I 
maybe don't like. I don't even really know why I don't like them. Mm-hmm. But is there is there advice you'd give me as as a returning worker on how to how to how to march forward um, in a way that is productive, not in the sort of classic economic definition, but in the sort of human definition? Are there things I can do, or do I just sort of have to succumb to whatever my employer does? Does that make any sense? No, no. I, I, you want to know if I could be at the uh, the cause of what's going on, or at the purely at the effect, right? Um, so I think that there's a, a few things. One is if you want to make it as pleasant as possible, focus on the human aspect of it, which is we talked about vulnerability loops and trust. The biggest thing you can do, regardless of anything, is foster an experience of belonging or trust around you. That means that either you're going to open up vulnerability loops and hope that other people complete them, or you're going to close as many for other people as possible. That might be on meetings on Zoom. It might be in person, whatever it is. But can I just, can I just grab that and, and ask the audience to just think about what John just said? Because it's a statement, but it's a big statement. Mm-hmm. And, and just this idea of opening up vulnerability loops at work, at home, in your life. Okay, keep going, John. (laughs) I want to emphasize, people hear vulnerability and they're like, oh, I have to talk about my divorce. That's not what I'm talking about. A vulnerability loop at work might be, uh, I'm a little nervous to give this presentation. Right. Uh, Or, Chris, you're a real expert on this topic. Can I get just five minutes of your time to look at a, a deck I've been working at? Right. And here's what's funny. There's this perception that I'll look incompetent if I ask you. But because you're an expert at this and you know you're an expert, when I come to you, you actually feel complimented. And I seem smarter because I've come to an expert. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it reminds me of, and I don't know if you and I talked this about this last time, but the, this idea that if I, I invite you to my home, and I think I, mm-hmm. I did invite you to my home, next time you're in Boston, I'd like you to come over and mm-hmm. we'll make dinner together, but you will help me make dinner. And in helping me make dinner, you actually walk away from the experience enjoying it more. Yes. There's, it's maybe a twisted version of what, what no, we're No, 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 that's about. absolutely. So that's, that's that IKEA effect portion. But there's also this portion of because you're an expert, I seem really smart for coming to you. Right. And so it's all around we win. And people have this worry about being incompetent, but it turns out that overwhelmingly we just end up looking more competent because we got the people who actually have the answers. Right. Right. So right. Uh, that would be my one biggest thing. And then the second thing I would say is if you're a leader, it's important to express and explain the complexities in the decision-making process because none of this is simple and everybody will tend to think about how it only affects them. Right. The reason I bring up that example of white versus black knowledge workers is precisely because nobody thinks about that. Right. Like part, part of the problem. Unless right. you're in a minority group that's affected by it. Right. People only think about themselves. Like, what about my kids? They're driving me crazy at home. And those who don't have kids now have to work longer hours because other people get breaks to take care of their kids. And when people have insight into how complex things are, then they tend to be more understanding, especially if you give them a forum to be heard. The conundrum, of course, is at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about how 
people seek to simplify everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's a question for you is as a consequence of that article in the globe, and I'm sure you've spoken on a number of shows about the topic, have organizations reached out to you for your help? Oh yeah. yeah. Some of the, the biggest complexity? tech companies in the world have come to me okay, just for good. discussions. I'm not, I'm not claiming that I have the answers, but right. I'm happy to have the conversations and share the science. Right. Um, and hopefully that will give people insight. And some of the science was really surprising to people. And that's, I think, really fair because they're not researchers. <laughs> Their job is to like keep a company running. Right. So it's, it's super complicated and we don't have all the answers. And here's the problem. It's just like as research started coming out about coronavirus, initially we're going to believe some things, think they're accurate, and then new research will show and we'll get a better model and understanding about where our misunderstandings are. And it's going to evolve. It's also going to evolve as more people enter the workforce. It's going to evolve now that if remote working is available, we're going to see more people who have maybe physical disabilities who can work from home joining the workforce. And so there are all these kind of interesting implications that um, that I, I think are going to be fascinating to unfold. Okay, okay you got to go. I'm sorry. Okay, John, thank you. I, I, I want to just, uh, I love talking to you. You are a wonderful- It's, it's super fun. I really enjoy our conversation. Like really great. And uh, I'm going to have you back on the show again sometime Whoa. soon. And who knows, one day it might be the John and Chris show. We never, you never know Ooh, what will unfold. That could be but, fun. But uh, to the audience, remember John John's new book, you're invited to the art and science of cultivating influence, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestseller. Uh, I encourage you to pick it up. He also has a TED talk worth watching. Uh, he has another book called The 2AM Principle worth reading. And he's a, just, he's a person trying to help humans be better at being human. So I love you for that. And uh, so grateful for your time. Okay, I'll let you go, brother. Ciao, baby. All right, bye. Ciao. Ciao. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons. There are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.